Brussels has published a long-awaited draft of its proposed overhaul of laws governing the European Union's pharmaceuticals industry. The biggest change of existing medical laws in two decades aimed at ensuring all Europeans have access to both innovative new treatments and generic drugs and ending huge divergences in access and prices between countries. The problem is that it's being met with resistance by the pharmaceuticals companies themselves. Welcome to IG Trade in the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Naylor. I'm talking today to Amy Kong, Chief Investment Officer at CI Barrett Private Wealth, which has $2.5 billion of assets under management. Amy, welcome. I want to start, if I can, by taking a broad look. Uh, before we get into pharma, um, let's take a look at what's happened in terms of your view of the first quarter earnings season so far. How do you think it's, play, uh, it's playing out? Well, thanks for having me, uh, Jeremy. I think the earnings season has actually been better than expected. We are getting into the thick of earnings right now. Probably about 35% of the S&P 500 companies have reported so far. And of that group, more than 80% have beat expectations, which is a good uh, ratio, if you would. I also think that probably minus some of the regional banks out there, uh, so far the guidance expectations has also been satisfactory. So I would say that this quarter has been better than expected. And of course, when, you, when you're measuring the expectations and so forth, it all goes down to what analysts believe is going to happen. And I know some analysts are fairly bearish with their outlook for the rest of this year. Do you think there's going to be a downturn in earnings this year as the idea that some of the bigger economies possibly might flirt with recession? That is absolutely a possibility, and we are still remaining cautious as we move into the back half of 2023. I think what we may end up starting to see in the back half is uh, continued fears of a recession. You've got the debt ceiling. You've got a lot of macro concerns that may start to unfold as the quarters go on, and the third and fourth quarters may not be as strong going forward. So we still actually expect S&P 500 earnings, which at the moment is about $219 for next year, excuse me, for this year, to uh, to decline maybe to the lower 200th by end of the year. Yeah, as, as of the time of recording, we're still awaiting earnings out from the likes of Pfizer, steering the conversation around to some of the pharmaceuticals. What sort of tradable trends and investable trends are you expecting to see? And what do you think the pharma sector is going to provide? Going back and touching on that idea about the outlook for recession and, and how to position yourself. Of course, I know that pharmaceutical stocks are, are quite neatly tucked away in a corner where people look to that to get some sort of returns in a downturn. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that they, they could be an outperformance. What's your thought about the pharmaceutical uh, sector? We like the pharmaceutical sectors for a variety of reasons. To, to tackle the first part of your question, you know, we haven't seen all the earnings come out yet, but so far J&J has reported, Merck, as well as AbbVie, some of these larger pharmaceutical companies have been beating expectations, as I've noted, and guidance has been okay. What we're seeing is that um, in terms of the macro economy, we are entering this more normalized post-COVID world, and that is starting to feed into, for example, procedures uh, are starting to go higher, which is helpful for medtech in the J&J space. Merck also has a vaccine business, which is very reliant on China, and as that is also reopening, it's reported very good numbers. Uh, Gardasil, which is their vaccine, is up 43% for the quarter. So I think that's uh, certainly one trend that we're seeing. What I think investors will also focus on is the fact that 
these are large pharmaceutical companies and they need to drive value. And one of the trends that we've been monitoring is the ability to hopefully successfully uh, do tuck-in acquisitions, not large acquisitions, but somewhere between that 10 to maybe $25 billion range. That's going to be necessary, uh, especially in the case of Pfizer. They need it. They're going to be losing a lot of revenue between now and 2030. I think Merck is at a point where after their split, they are in a position to become more offensive. And J&J is sort of in a holding pattern because of their spinoff, which we hope should be um, more, um, you know, uh, uh, productive at the end of this year, or we'll have more information by the end of this year. So that's one trend that we're also very, very keen on as we're watching these uh, companies report. Yeah, well, let's just pick up on that Johnson & Johnson point. Uh, as you say, it's a diversified healthcare company, which I understand CI Barrett has exposure to. Uh, it's been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons, as we know, fighting of claims that uh, you know, some of its products causing cancer in, in users. The, the healthcare giant's dismembering itself to protect parts of it. Uh, some say at a discount. What's your view? I mean, are these big conglomerates now just too big? Uh, and this sort of um, whittling down to more value for shareholders, do you think that's going to be one of the, the big themes? I, I talk about this in the context of an interview I did a while back with GlaxoSmithKline, uh, when GlaxoSmithKline came along and spun off Halion. And that seems to have been a particularly good deal uh, for shareholders. Do you think there's value to be unlocked here with these companies as they begin to break down some of their um, big uh, conglomerate sort of attitude to, to this market and become more nimble companies? Yeah, I, I agree uh, with you. I think breaking down these larger conglomerates uh, may be a very successful strategy in the long run. Uh, essentially, we are seeing that trend play out. We, we've seen it with Pfizer. We've seen it with Merck. Uh, and, and in the case of Merck, it's been successful. You're breaking away the lower growth or the slowing growth parts of the company. And you're focused on, um, in, the, in terms of Merck itself right now, is focused on some of the higher growth biopharma assets. And what we're seeing is a little bit of a re-rating of their price-to-earnings ratio. And that could be a similar situation for J&J as they you know, unlock their consumer's business. Essentially, you're breaking the firm into two parts where there's a fast-growing and there's a you know, more moderate-growing piece. That may be a good strategy in unlocking shareholder value. Right now, because J&J is still in that holding pattern, per se, I think it is reasonable to have the stock trade at a discount. Um, we have been long-term holders and we will continue to hold the stock because valuation looks pretty good to us. And this is a defensive play, which goes very nicely with some of our tech, more growth-oriented holdings. Uh, right now, J&J is trading actually at about 20% discount to the market, which is actually unique when you look at history uh, for the stock. The typical discount has been somewhere between five, maybe 10%. So it is trading a little bit out of bounds in terms of its historical range. Uh, and not for not, not for uh, reason. I mean, you've got a lot of uncertainties. The talc issue you mentioned, I think they are going to lose some uh, exclusivity with some of their larger drugs, Solera, as an example, later this year. Uh, and of course, the consumer business is kind of on a, in a holding pattern. We don't have much details on what the IPO details will look like. So for these three reasons, it does make sense to us that the stock is 
sort of trading in a little bit more of a discounted range. And until we get more details, we would expect that discount to narrow quite a bit. So we like J&J. Uh, we think it's a very good defensive play. They did up their dividends. And so while you're waiting for all this to pan out, you are getting paid. Mm. Let, let's let's, let's drink, uh, dig a little deeper now into this idea that uh, the EU, amongst other regions, are trying to revamp their drug laws to boost access to affordable drugs. Now, it's, it's important important that we all as a as a global society get access to these drugs. I know it's very costly in some some cases and the European Union is trying as much as they can to level the playing field. To what degree is this destroying the opportunity for, for drug companies to to make good money and, and, and to deal with a region which is so heavily regulated? Now, I think that's the, the bottom line of the proposal. It certainly seems to me that's what the European Union want to do. Um, who's going to benefit from all this? Sure. I think the proposal is still in the works. There's a lot of details to be ironed out. Based on what we know at the moment, it seems that they want to truncate the exclusivity uh, time frame, if you would, from 10 to 8 years. And just looking at that alone, it would seem that generic companies would benefit as a result of that. Um, certainly, on the other side, to your point, large cap pharma companies are not pleased with this proposal because really when you have a new drug in the market, most of the revenue is made during that exclusivity phase. And so when you shorten that, obviously there's going to be a dent in profits and companies will have to start to weigh in what that profitability looks like against the monies that went in to research the drug to, to create that drug in, in the first place. And I think that's a huge takeaway from this proposal. It's, you know, as these pharma, com pharma companies look at the, the proposal and the recommendations, the idea of renovation, innovation, excuse me, is going to be uh, a huge talking point because you will lose innovation if you don't allow these companies to, uh, to make money based on the drugs. And I think that is um, a, certainly a bigger topic or bigger takeaway from this proposal. So more to come, but I would imagine that large cap farmers will unfortunately be at the losing end of this proposal. Mm. Uh, that's large cap farmers. We've spoken about um, the healthcare end of the market. How about medical device companies? How much of an opportunity do you see there in, in that space, uh, rather than saying pure pharmaceutical companies looking for some of these companies that make the products that help us recover? Is there an opportunity, do you see there, for device makers in up there with the opportunities for investors? Yeah, we, we like MedTech, but I want to be selective here. You know, as we're now really normalizing post-COVID, um, as you've pointed out earlier, demand for procedures is starting to come back. I think hospital staffing, which was a big issue during the pandemic, is starting to ease up a little bit. What we're seeing across the board is that medtech companies are benefiting from this resurgence of procedures um, normalizing. And that may be a, a, a great thing in the shorter term, but at some point the demand for procedures will normalize out as well. And so when we think about the medtech space over the longer run, we want to be selective, meaning we want companies that can innovate. And innovation is really what has been driving growth in this sector. What we're also very keen on are companies that have pricing power, especially as inflation remains sticky. And what we're finding is that some of these medtech companies may not have as much pricing power because they're dealing with hospitals. And so there's some pricing power, but not to the tune that um, you would expect more in the private space. And so we're, we're mindful of that. Uh, and so longer term, we're very keen on companies that can drive innovation and really can, again, have new products or upgraded products, which 
uh, typically drive better pricing uh, relative to some of the older products. And that's where I think the growth will come in. So I wouldn't buy any tech company. I would just be a uh, med tech company. Rather, I would be very careful in terms of the, the company specifically because we want innovation um, as well as um, the ability to raise prices to a degree um, going forward. Just just um, talking from a, a personal view of this sector, I don't know of any really big types between med tech companies and pharmaceutical companies. More so pharmaceutical companies move into the area of, of personal hygiene and so forth. Is that just my misunderstanding of the sector or is there a, a big discrepancy between med tech and pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, I mean, um, there is because, you know, med tech companies, uh, they are the ones that make, you know, for example, the knees and the hips or components that go into surgeries. And so there's probably uh, a less profitable business model there. When you're looking at large cap pharma, you know, certainly the bulk of the expenses would be the R&D that goes into the drug. And so once a drug is um, is in the market and FDA approved per se, the incremental cost is certainly not as high. And so profit margins would be um, a lot more attractive or relatively better than some of the med tech space. Uh, and, and so there's a big difference there. Um, I would say the similarities between the two is, you know, ultimately they're product driven uh, and that's where innovation is key for this industry. Uh, and so it, the innovation is pretty apparent um, in the in the drug space, and you would need that in the in the med tech space as well. Um, and so that's um, another you know common thread, if you would, between the two. Yeah, fascinating, uh, Amy. Unfortunately, we've got to leave it there because time has beaten us. But thanks indeed for your time. It's uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. That's Amy Kong, Chief Investment Officer at CI Barrett Private Wealth. <laughs>